Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to the February 2014 episode of Open Apple. February, a month of significant anniversaries. It is the Super Bowl. It's the Puppy Bowl. It is Groundhog Day. And most important of all, it's the third birthday of Open Apple. Happy birthday, Mike. Happy birthday, Ken. Well, thank you, sir. can't believe that it's been three years since you and I founded this show. I know, and yet it seems like just yesterday. In a way, it does. I remember how terrible those first episodes were. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a part of me that uh, wishes that I could go back and erase them from the from the Wayback Machine, but um, we'll, <laughs> we'll let them stand as they are, I suppose. Yeah, you know, someday archaeologists may want to see the evolution of this show from before we became as famous as we are now and even famouser that we will be, and they'll say, wow, such humble beginnings. Anybody can do this. Yeah, but I don't want them to see that. I want... You want... You want to have always been famous? Right, exactly. I want this to be sort of an unattainable celebrity status. Cause, cause that's how important I am. Well, even Steve Jobs couldn't do that. It was only once he became famous that people started remembering what a jerk he was. I think there are probably people out there who always remembered what a jerk he was. I think he was more of a jerk at the beginning, but, you know, once he became really famous at Apple during his second coming, I think that's when it really, he really started capturing more headlines. I think when he was gone to next, people kind of forgot about him. Yeah, I think it was when they stuck that eye in front of the CEO position that he just really went off the deep end. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go that far. I think he, he did a lot of good work at Apple. <laughs> Absolutely, he did. And we try to do good work here at the Open Apple podcast. That's right. So what work have you been up to lately, sir? Uh, avoiding the cold and snow mostly. Um, we seem to just, yeah. every time it, it, Sort of melts away. We get another. We get another. We get dumped on again. And in fact, it's been snowing pretty steadily since yesterday here. So, well, at least in Denver, when it snows, it eventually goes away. Here in Massachusetts, it just lingers and gets dirty. Ew. Yeah, that was one of the things I was looking forward to about moving to Denver a couple of years ago. <laughs> I understand that you were working uh, on and off on a retro challenge warm-up. I was. Yes, I, I dusted off the old Apple Three and and. I went. I got as far as, let's see, uh, testing the hardware, the Apple III hardware, and making sure that it still worked, and that was it. That was all she wrote. Unfortunately, I, one of the drawbacks of the Apple III is that the, the, the hardware, because everything is everything is um, a device and it requires a driver, um, and in fact, pretty much every Apple III guide out there will tell you when you make Changes to the driver configurations on your disk. Make sure that you copy it to all the other disks that you use. Otherwise, you're going to have to go and reconfigure it. And so I was uh, trying to, I was going to have to reconfigure my boot disk to to work with the CFFA 3000. And that was, it's kind of a, it's not difficult, but it's a little bit of a time-consuming pr- uh, process. And there's some trial and error in there sometimes. And and I just uh, never managed to secure enough uh, contiguous free time to make that happen. So so it's not difficult, just tedious. Right. Yeah, I am really good at putting off the tedious. <laughs> I would rather do something that's hard. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and, and January is just generally a busy month for me with work. And, um, I, you know, my anniversary is this month, and that's automatically about a week and a half where I can't really do anything else. A belated happy anniversary to you. Well, thank you, sir. 
And to your lovely wife as well. I'll pass it on to her. And to your dogs. I don't think they were involved, but oh. I'll start <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a different podcast. It, it would entirely, uh, yes. Ken, what have you been up to with the Apple II? Uh, not too much, except oh, well, there was a... I, <laughs> you should know that about me by now, Mike. I'm always a letdown. Uh, well, I actually had a uh, unique intersection between my Apple II and my YouTube channel, which continues to baffle me with its popularity. I think it's at 21,000 subscribers and 3.3 million views. Wow. Yeah, it's so just you really strange. are an internet superstar. Nobody's recognized me yet, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I bought just one additional cable that I needed, and now I can do uh, gameplay video capture off my iPod and iPad. Oh, neat. Yeah, so if I want to do uh, an iOS game and narrate it while I'm playing, I can do that. As a test r- trial, I did a... Anytime I buy new hardware or video capture software, I do one video just as a proof of concept, and I don't care about the quality. It's really more a way of me making sure I understand the concept. Sure. So I did a Let's Play video, which is just me playing a game and talking over it, of iShizen for iOS. That's the game that Kelvin Sherlock ported from the Apple II. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I learned some limitations from that. Like, if the game is in portrait mode, you're going to have to rotate it into landscape or do something to make sure it's easily watched on YouTube without these massive black bars. Hope to maybe do some more videos for the iOS, but we'll see. However, that got the attention of another Apple II user. Uh, I'm not sure if he wants me mentioning his name, because I think this might be a project he's still working on. But he asked me, can I use my Elgato Game Capture, which is my HDMI video capture device that I use with both my Nintendo and my iOS devices, will it work on the Apple II? So I tried that. Obviously, the Apple II does not support HDMI, but it does have an RCA composite video out on the back of my GS. So I plugged that into the component converter that the Elgato comes with. And then I plugged that into my MacBook Pro, and I switched the uh, input to composite. And I think I was using the red cable of the RGB. I was using just the red. And I actually was able to capture my Apple IIGS desktop and me playing Dualtrus. Wow, neat. Yeah, I, I didn't bother trying to capture the audio. I'm sure that was possible with some additional hookups. But if I wanted to do video capture off actual hardware as opposed to emulation, which would be a heck of a lot easier to do a screencast, the Elgato will support that as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I don't think I'm going to branch out into that just yet. Uh, there, the video quality did look a little strange on the Finder. I didn't try any 8-bit games. I don't know what that would have looked like. But in theory, it does work. Well, I can't wait to see your first video. Of the Apple II? Yes. Huh, I wonder what that will look like. I did a unboxing of Zephyr, but that wasn't a direct video capture. I'll have to find a reason to do a video capture off the Apple II. Any suggestions? None off the top of my head, no. Okay. Well, maybe if somebody in the Apple II community comes out with a new game and I happen to buy it, maybe I can try that. Here's hoping. (laughs) Also, we got a letter from a listener, Quinn Dunkey. Yes, uh, Quinn Dunkey is is a hacker that Carrington and I actually interact with on a regular basis on um, No Quarter because she's a big fan of... Well, who isn't? Well, that's true, yeah. Um, she's a big fan of the of, of arcade games, and 
you and I, I did not know that you listened to Open Apple actually, but you and I had, or you asked in a previous episode, what do people actually do with their Mac minis? I think that was, may have been the one where we had, uh, Charles Mangan on and he was talking about his mods, uh, for the, for the, uh, Mac mini. Um, but she wrote in and told us what she did. And that is that she used that, uh, to, I, I think she's, ho- Hosting it, she's turned it basically into the the an arcade emulator. She previously built this massive um, joystick controller thing. It's a huge monster of a controller, um, and you can look at pictures of it on on her blog. And she talks about how she goes and and makes these things. And so she wrote in to let us know that that she had a, a use for her Mac Mini. That sounds like a great use. I would love to have a home arcade machine. As would I. And her instructions and pictures are good enough that probably anyone could do it. So despite you co-hosting the No Quarter podcast, you don't have any coin ops in your home? No, no. Unfortunately, um, I, I love my wife, which means that, you know, if, if I bring one of those home, I, I might not have a wife. So, Have you ever thought about one of those, what are they called, supercades, where you have like 150 games in one? I have. I think the problem is, is less that it's a game in the house and more that it's taking up valuable real estate on the floor. Uh, those practical concerns aside, would you be happy with a Super K, which is technically emulation? I think I'd rather have the real thing. Even if it meant f- having fewer games? Yeah. yeah. Because I can, I've can. i messed with my main settings enough that I'm happy with the state of emulation on my computer. Um, so I don't really feel the need to buy a big box to put that in. Makes sense to me. Yep. Well, Mike, I have nothing further to say to you. As usual, yep, and I'm glad to hear that. I think we better bring in a third guest before this episode just dies off. You mean it hasn't already? This is Randy Kindig of the Antic and Floppy Days podcast. Go Atari. I, I mean Apple. So this month, we're joined by a longtime Apple II um, user and, and community supporter. Uh, Mr. Sean Fahey is with us. He, uh, uh, I, I don't really think he needs a whole lot of introduction, but if you're new to the community and you don't know who he is, he's um, the man currently behind A2Central.com. He's on the Kansas Fest Committee. Uh, he shows up every year, and he's established a recent, uh, a recent tradition of, uh, I think we call it Sean's Garage, uh, where uh, he loads up his trucks and brings them down to to Rockhurst and unloads them and and lets the lets the Kansas Fest attendees pick through it and take home anything that they can fit in their cars and carry on bags or and so uh, welcome to the show Sean. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for being. Hey, here. thanks for being had. Uh, so we'll start off with the question that we usually do, Sean. How did you get involved with Apple II computers and and why did why did you pick that over say Commodore or Atari or one of those other less worthy machines? Uh, well, uh, when I was very young, uh, my uncle uh, brought my cousin and I into his, where he worked at the university, and uh, he worked in the computer room, and I had never seen a computer before, but I was immediately kind of infatuated with all the blinky lights and the spinning reel-to-reel drives, and uh, he sat us down in front of a terminal, and he said we could ask the computer any question and it would answer us. <laughs> we could type, we could type in the question. And then he said it has a voice synthesizer and it will, it will answer you in this, this voice. And I thought that was really cool. So we were asking it, you know, little kid questions like, 
who was the first president. And sure enough, the robotic voiceover, the, the, the handset would say the first president was George Washington. And this proceeded on for probably 30, 40 minutes. And, well, uh, nature called, and I had to get up and find the restroom. So I'm tootling down the hallway when I look into an office and I see this guy with his feet up on the desk, leaning back in a chair, and he's answering to the phone, <laughs> the, the capital of Kansas is Topeka. <laughs> well, anyway, he was playing a joke on us, but the thing is, is it really hooked me on computers. I I wanted to learn more about it. So uh, that summer I got a job. I cashed in my savings. I bummed money off my grandma and grandpa, and I bought an Altair. An Altair? An Altair, yes. It, it was a kit. Uh, my uncle helped me buy it also, and we spent um, – a couple of weeks putting it together because neither of us really had an electronics background. And we, we smoked it three times before we got it right, made many trips to Radio Shack to get a few replacement parts and to get advice on how to solder and some other residents. Well, I thought that Altair was awesome for like the first two weeks. And then I started getting blisters on my fingers, uh, from flipping all those switches. <laughs> and, uh, uh, one day I was opening, flipping through a magazine, and I saw this ad for a computer that came in its own case. You could hook up to a TV, and it had a keyboard and color. And mm. then I realized that that was the computer I should have got. And so I went to, you know, rinse, repeat. I saved up more money, bought more money off of my grandma, cashed in uh, money that I had set aside for college, and uh, ended up buying an Apple II, and I sold my my share of the Altair to my uncle, and that's how I got the Apple II. It was uh, one of the very first machines. Uh, it was in the four thousand serial number range, and uh, <laughs> yeah, life had never has never been the same. I mean, it was it was, it was such a, an epiphany for me to to get that Apple II. It changed my life forever. You still have your Apple II, the original? Well, that's another funny story, uh, for me anyway. Um, when I left Illinois to move back home uh, to Kansas, I left that Apple II with my uncle because uh, I had decided at that time that I was going to get an Apple IIe. But I made my uncle promise that he was going to hold on to that machine, and if I ever wanted it back, I would get it from him. Well, time marched on, and I... Left the Apple II scene, went to the out to to the PC, um, and there was like a, a stretch of eight or ten years that went by, um, and then I rediscovered the Apple II, and nostalgia just hit me really hard. So I contacted my uncle and I said, "Hey, I want my old Apple II back," and uh, they lost it. It was gone. They didn't know where it was because they'd moved a couple of times, and I was kind of heartbroken. Well. A few more years go by, and uh, the church that my aunt and uncle used to go to up in Illinois called them up one day and said, hey, we got this box in storage with your name on it. Uh, there's an old computer in it. Do you want it back? Hmm. And it, it turned out it was my, my old Apple II. Um, so wow. it came back to me. <laughs> Out of impossible odds, it, it came home. So, yes, I still have my original Apple II. So they never lost it. They just misplaced it. Yeah, well, apparently uh, 
my aunt was not aware of my arrangement with my uncle, and she had donated it to the church for a rummage sale, but nobody bought it because it was an obsolete old Apple II, which worked to my advantage because now it's collectible. If if I were to try to sell this thing on eBay, I think I would get probably well over my original money for it because I've been seeing these things go for insane prices, like you know, thirty five hundred. $4,500. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's insane crazy. But the, the thing is, is, uh, back in the day, I probably spent two grand to get it. And, uh, and I don't know how much more to, ex- to enhance it and, you know, improve it. But, uh, it's pretty much all original still. Um, it still has energy basic. It's, it's a rev, it's in a rev, it's a rev zero board. It's one of the first ones. It's like a lost dog that just found found its way home to you. Yeah, I mean, it was it as far as I was concerned. When my uncle said it was gone, I thought lost forever. I'll never see it again. Sure. And so it was it was rather miraculous that they found it at, at the church and returned it because they had moved from Illinois to Iowa down to Missouri, and they had kept in touch with these people at the church. And um, I mean, they they could have just said, "Hey, this is this little computer," and thrown it away. Yeah, that, uh, that's that's quite a series of, of lucky events for you. Yeah, I think so. Now, you had mentioned that uh, you got kind of like a lot of us do, got away from the Apple II for a while. What 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 brought you back to it? Uh, one day I was working, I came across Apple One, and I thought I I would download it, try it out, maybe play a few old games that I enjoyed, and uh, then I discovered eBay, and I. Uh, Decided I would like to go ahead and buy a real Apple IIe, you know, and and I wanted I had this fantasy that I would configure it the way my my other Apple IIe was back in the day. So, you know, I wanted an Apple Cat modem, a Grappler, a printer, face card, and the RAM works. And next thing I know, I have a garage full of Apple IIs <laughs> and a storage shed and a spare room and yeah. my. Yeah, I just kept going. <laughs> yeah, you, you're, um, you definitely have a large collection as, as far as probably, uh, probably many of us would, are concerned. Um, which you, I guess now are, are you downsizing it? Is that, cause I know that, like I said, every year you show up at Kansas Fest and you've got truckloads of the stuff that you're giving away. Is that, how, what's, uh, what's going on there? Well, I think I'm on downsize 8.0. Okay. Uh, We've been doing the garage giveaway for, for, for quite a few years now. Uh, it started out with me having people come down to my house and pick through the garage and pick out anything they wanted. Um, and, but lately we've, we've tried to make it easier for attendees instead of making the hike all the way from Kansas City down to where I live, which is, uh, could be an hour long drive. Um, we've been throwing everything into James Little John's bus, truck, trailer, whatever. Without James Littlejohn, this just would not be possible because he does all the heavy lifting and hauling because I don't have a pickup um, and or a bus. <laughs> and we would bring this stuff to K-Fest for people to look through. And usually the, the stuff that I bring is either stuff that I did not have space for or that I have taken in as a donation or I've rescued from somewhere. I, get a lot of, I used to get a lot of emails from uh, people who would contact the local Apple II group who, who said they wanted to get rid of something. If, if somebody didn't take it, it was just going to go to the landfill. 
Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I just couldn't stand that, the idea of that happening. Uh, so magazines, software, equipment, you name it. Um, I would go pick it up or they would send it to me and I would hold on to it and I would just give it away at K-Fest. Uh, which leads me, I guess, to the next question, and maybe you get this one a lot. Um, I've seen some of the stuff that you give away at Kansas Fest, and it seems to me like you would make a lot of money parting it out on eBay or Craigslist or something. Why Why just give it away at Kansas Fest? Well, I I, I guess it's uh, – I mean, I take donations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I put a kitty on the table, and if anybody wants to – you know, donate towards my storage and gas fees and my keep my wife happy fund. <laughs> that that's great because you know she hates it that I store all this stuff. But um, if if something comes to me freely, I'm kind of a give it away freely guy. I I just uh, I'd rather share it with people who are going to appreciate it because it's much more fun that way. Uh, when you sell something to someone, there there's like an expectation that goes along with it of, uh, you know, they got to be happy with it. I'd rather just have an open palm, uh, you know, an op- you know, I think uh, what comes around goes around. Mm-hmm. So if I give something away to someone, uh, maybe they'll be inclined if, if they have something that I like that they don't want, they'll give it to me. Now, have you ever had somebody who say – Saw some great stuff that you were giving away, and then a week later, it's on eBay or something. Yeah, that's happened a few times. So, so what I do when I when I give this stuff away, I, I have a standard spiel of uh, take what you want, take what you will actually appreciate. Please do not just turn around and sell it. And, and lately, that uh, it lately that I think people have been honoring that well that's good to hear and and i know that there are definitely a lot of uh grateful apple II fans every year at kansas fest because you do this i know people really look forward to that i'm one of them as a matter of fact so um thank well, you thank you for putting that on we all appreciate that well thanks i, I it gives me warm fuzzies you know? <laughs> good well that's that's always a good reason to do do that Sean, back between Christmas and New Year's, you wrote on A2Central.com that you had just taken in a haul from Michael J. Mann up in the Seattle, Washington area of nearly four tons, 8,000 pounds of Apple II stuff. Now, he's been on our show before, back in episode number 12. We're big fans of his work, and we're glad that he's not abandoning the Apple II community, just slimming down his personal collection. And it's not surprising me that he'd reach out to you to store and distribute this material, but how in heaven's name did you move heaven and earth or four tons of Apple II stuff, over a 1,000 miles. Well, we, we thought about, uh, you know, James and John and I maybe going up there, you know, flying up, renting a truck, bringing it back. Um, and that would have been the cheapest way to go about it, even with gas prices. Uh, but we just couldn't, you know, between Michael's schedule and our schedules, uh, we just couldn't get anything to sync. So uh, what we ended up doing instead was, you know, I hired a mover to come in there, pack everything up, which made it real easy for Michael. He just had to point and say, load this, load that. And then uh, I had to sit on pins and needles for, you know, for a week and a half, two weeks. Because, you know, they don't just pick it up and deliver it. Yeah, they have, they have to go through logistics of shipping it. And they actually subcontract a trucker, if you will, to bring it down here. And then you have to set up a delivery time that works 
for them, which means taking a day off usually. They they actually wanted to deliver it on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and then he wanted to deliver it on Christmas Day. I'm like, what? No way. That's pretty dedicated of them. Well, yeah. And then uh, it, we ended up getting it done uh, the day after Christmas. And it's uh, it's quite a collection. Man. And it's been really hard not to go down there in the freezing cold and just kind of poke through things and, you know, experiment, play with. And there's a lot of cool items in there. Uh, Michael had quite a collection. I can imagine. Now that you have all this stuff, what are you going to do with it? You know, I like to bring stuff to K-Fest and kind of, you know, throw it out there for anybody to take. But we already we already have a load for 2014, and then I, I think I've got... 2015 and part of 2016 already covered. I guess we just need to keep having K-Fest then. Yeah. I mean, I don't care if people show up on Saturday and pick over the remains, but, uh, you know, people that who are impressively new. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's just no way I could personally hold on to all this stuff. It's It's beyond me. You're putting out your own money to store all that stuff, right? Yeah, um, and it was a pretty significant investment to get the stuff here from from Washington State, uh, but uh, it was worth it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to sell some of the items on eBay or to uh, folks to recoup some of my expenses. Uh, but I, the, where I have it, everything stored, I know the owner of the storage facility. And he's a good friend, so. Uh, you know, I work on his computers, and he lets me store things. So there's a kind of a reciprocal agreement between us. And then uh, the other thing is, I'm gonna. There's some specialized items in the collection that I want to make sure go to people who have those specialized interests. I'm hoping to approach people like uh, Brian Peachy and uh, Paul Hagstrom about helping me to document a lot of the stuff, uh, Stavros and uh, Dr. Weirich. Yep. Uh, I got, there's a lot of Apple II medical interface gear in here. Oh, fascinating. And uh, Stavros and Steve and I, we've, we've talked about maybe having a, um, an Apple II checkup during Kansas Fest, you know, with a Krispy Kreme copay. Oh, interesting. That'd be cool. Yeah. There's a cardio comp. Uh, EKG or e- ECG or something like that, electrocardiogram that interfaces to the Apple II. There's a physiology lab kit. And somewhere in there, there's a, a device for testing your hearing. I haven't found that yet. You might want to do that after everybody's had their donuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing the variety of uh, equipment that was produced for the Apple II back in the day. Yeah, and that Michael had so much of it. Yeah. Well, he, he'd been collecting for 30-plus years, so... I mean, there's more than just Apple II stuff in there. There's also some modern, fairly modern software that I saw, and uh, there's also some Commodore, Atari, and Tiris 80 stuff. So you just threw that stuff right out? I don't know. I'm probably going to bring that stuff to K-Fest and see if anyone's interested. I, I'm not really... Uh, I'm pretty... Due to my space constraints, I'm pretty Apple II specific. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had a, you know, a bigger spread, that I would probably experiment with the other stuff. But I just don't have the time or the space. And I know people like Paul and uh, a few of the other guys. They uh, 
they switch around. So, no, we'll get that stuff to them, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul is just down the road from me in Boston, but he just seems swamped with work lately. We haven't been able to get together for lunch lately. Uh, sometime uh, this spring, uh, we have made some informal plans that James Little John will come up from Oklahoma. Uh, Tony has Tony Diaz has talked about possibly flying out from California, and uh, Stavros, um, whose last name I always mangle, <laughs> uh, he he'll come out from Ohio, and uh, we'll go through that collection. We're going to do uh, you know some sorting, organizing. We're going to move things that are in cardboard boxes to plastic totes. Uh, anything that's uh, Real sensitive. I'm going to try to get it into a, a better storage, maybe into in the garage or down into Oklahoma. Maybe I don't know. We just have to go through it and find out. I mean, it's it's. I have pictures. It's it's a huge lot. <laughs> yeah, you should do an unboxing video of everything. That would fill up quite a few memory cards, and I think it would probably be. Uh, Annoying. <laughs> <laughs> now let's let's turn to to the other thing that that you're really well known for, uh, A2 Central. How did you how did you get involved with that? Because I know I, I think Sheppy actually established that way back in like 2000 2001. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, when he originally started that project, I offered to help out, and uh, but he he already had a bunch of people lined up, like Andy Malloy and uh, some others. Uh, and then after a while, I was contributing some stories. You know, if I would find something online, I would submit it. And then I think it was around 2006, uh, Sheppy wanted to free up some time. He wanted to, uh, he was looking for someone to kind of take it over. And, uh, I volunteered. Uh, I ran it for what, till like 2010 or 11. And then I handed it over to, was it, I think it was to you, was it not? It was. Yeah. I, I did that for about a year. And, uh, it's, it's rewarding and it also requires a commitment of time because, you know, you're always out there looking for the news, right? Yeah, it's, it is really a lot of work. And like you said, it's rewarding and fun, but it can be exhausting sometimes. Well, see, uh, A2 Central now is, uh, I, I wanted this to be this way from the get go, but it, it's kind of a co-op. I, you know, when somebody wants to make a product announcement, I'm more than happy to give them a, an account on there so that they can make their own announcements. Oh, nice. I'd, I'd like it to be more of a kind of a community posting place for, for the news. Great. And you are, you're also on the, uh, the Kansas Fest committee, of course. And so, uh, do you yeah. have, do you have any secrets that you can tell us? Please, please, please. I have not been authorized to share any secrets. Oh, man. All right. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. I never cease to be amazed about the vast number of new hardware development projects that are coming out for the Apple II. Thirty plus years after this machine launched, we're still finding new ways to expand it. And the newest way is the Ethernet 2. It's a brand new Ethernet card that Glenn Jones is working on to supplant or replace the one that he's been selling on and off for nearly a decade now. Now, I fell a little bit behind the ball on this. This was actually announced on his website on January 15th, and I didn't pick up on it until a day or two after A2 Central report about it. Sean, what have you heard about this product? I'm looking forward to it. I've already ordered four of them. On, I'm on his waiting list already. 
Wow. Uh, I think it's awesome that he's replacing the original Ethernet because uh, based on what I'm reading on the, the new one, uh, this will probably make it easier for people to write uh, IP-aware applications for the Apple II. And uh, another great thing is, uh, to me, the Ethernet card was a game-changer for the Apple II, just like the original CFFA card was. I, I think these two cards really kick-started, if you will, uh, a lot of development and interest in the Apple II because they added an extra level of convenience and modernization to the hobby. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think a lot of people use their Apple II as part of a modern work environment and being able to interface that Apple II with those other machines, whether it's via the internet or via removable media, is necessary to keep the Apple II alive. Yes. Now, when I first read the blog post Glenn Jones wrote, I, I should have read it more carefully because uh, I was kind of discouraged when he wrote that this new card will not be backward compatible with the current Ethernet card from a software standpoint. But as A2 Central reported and as Peter Neubauer pointed out to me, uh, the, that same blog post also says that the developers of Contiki, ADT Pro, and Marinetti, as well as Ewan Wen up and all his stuff, they're all working on updates to their programs to support the new Ethernet card. Yeah, on the 8-bit Apple II, um, you know, like programs like Contiki, uh, they'll have to have library support built in through like IP65. But on the GS, it's just really the link layer driver that has to be rewritten. And that will, I mean, it, that's work, but it, it's what does all the heavy lifting for the IP-aware applications like Snap and uh, all the things that uh, Ewan's written. Yeah, and I don't know if Peter would be happy with me for uh, quoting his personal email to me verbatim, but he said, The old Ethernet card required the programmer and the slow Apple II CPU to do quite a bit of work. Yes. The new WizNet W5100-based Ethernet includes a complete TCP IP implementation on the card, thus relieving the programmer and CPU from the significant task. I expect Ethernet 2 software to be easier to write and faster to run compared to Ethernet 1 software. I agree. Uh, at least I hope that's the way it's going to turn out. I, w I wonder if future programs that support the Ethernet 2 will not be backward compatible. For, for example, there will be a program that somebody will download and it will say, we're sorry, you have the Ethernet 1 car and this program won't work with that. <laughs> that's, that's actually a, a pretty good possibility. Yeah, so we'll all have to replace our Ethernets. This is quite the racket that Glenn Jones has. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I would not sincerely accuse anybody in the Apple II community of such crass commercialism. I do appreciate everything Glenn is doing to keep the Apple II alive and well. Well, I, I think uh, as long as they're using the original link layer, the old cards will work, just you know, like the Lance GS, mm -hmm. the original Ethernet. But I think there will probably be applications written, at least possibly on the GS, that will enjoy maybe some enhancements provided by the functionality of the, the the extensibility that the Ethernet 2 may offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll so, be very exciting to see what comes out. I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm hoping that, and, and you know, this might be a plea, but maybe Glenn will consider me as a beta tester. <laughs> well, you have supported him in the past with such efforts, haven't you? No, actually, I, I, I've directed other people his way. Oh, okay. I remember way back when the Ethernet first came out, I think it was an issue of Juice GS that Ryan edited, and I think you... Did you have an interview with Glenn in that issue, or weren't you somehow a contributor to that feature article? 
Uh, I think I helped test out the Contiki interface with it. That sounds familiar. Uh, I don't remember interviewing Glenn. Oh, okay. If I did, I it's been a long time. <laughs> when Mike went back years ago to index that issue of Juice GS, there was no byline on that article, so I think he just left a question mark, and I wondered, I wonder if Sean wrote that. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so let's see. What else do we have coming out for the Apple II? It looks like we have some new software. Uh, we have... A couple of games that have been released, and games were always my favorite growing up with the Apple II. Uh, Brian Peachy has released a new one. We recently discussed how he came out with the, uh, what was the game where you're helping your sheep get through the woods? Lamb Chops? Yes. Yeah, he just came out with that, and we thought that would be the last of him before he became a daddy, as we announced in the last episode of Open Apple. But no, he's back at it, trying to push out as many games as he can before his wife pushes out their child. <laughs> and, uh... Their new game is Retro Fever, and it is a collaboration with Brandon Bogle of RetroSwitch.com. Have you played this game yet? I have not. I've only uh, seen the YouTube video. Uh, I'm looking forward to maybe trying it this weekend, though. It looks uh, like it might be a fun game. Yeah, it looks very meta. You're basically trying to collect and repair old computers while keeping evil businessmen from reselling them on eBay for inflated prices. It's like he followed me around and studied my life. <laughs> A2 fan fever. Now, let's see. This says you can buy a hard copy, which includes the disc, the manual, and the Ziploc bag for 17 bucks. I saw it on eBay. It's on eBay? Is that where you... Yeah, he's selling it on eBay. You can get it okay. there. You can also buy it right off his website um, through PayPal. Well, obviously, it would be better for him if, if people bought it from him directly. Yeah, actually, as we uh, record this show, I'm doing that right now. I'm punching in my credit card information into PayPal and buying a copy of this game. Wow, real time. And you, <laughs> and you can download the disk image for free. And uh, what, So what you're really paying for is the the feelies, but it, it's nice to support them, you know? Yes, I agree. Let's see. Same as billing, yep. Uh, yeah, there's a certain charm, for me at least, to, to buy software that comes in a baggie. I mean, it's so retro, nostalgic, because uh, I remember going to the computer store when I was a kid, and everything came in a baggie, because it was all uh, independent publishers, and even in the even the brands published originally in baggies, and boxes were kind of new. Mm-hmm. Usually to protect the, the cassette tape. <laughs> but uh, wow. it's... It's kind of it's charming in a way to buy something still in a, in a bag. Actual Ziploc bags predate me a little bit. By the time I was buying software, they came in boxes. So the first baggy game I may have ever actually bought was Zephyr, which Brutal Deluxe came out with last year, and I did an unboxing, or I guess technically an unbagging video of. That is a hard game. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is well beyond me, especially when I accidentally booted it into the Apple II GS accelerated mode. That was hard to play. I think they should have just called it Brutal Zephyr. <laughs> that would be great. Further news on the Apple II game front is a re- is an update, the first one in four years, to that classic role-playing game, Silver and Castle. It's all the way up to version 9.5 now. That is amazing that Jeff Fink is still thinking about this game and still tweaking it to get it just right. I think that's awesome. Has anybody? I know Bruce Baker has played this game at... Several Kansas Fest sessions. It's been a while since I've played it. What about any of you guys? It's been a few years since I've messed with it, but I, I really enjoyed it when I was when I was playing it. 
Uh, I just played it two weeks ago. Uh, to me, this is a game that's got legs. I uh, I like playing role playing games, and there's just times when it's like a rainy, cold winter day, and I just sit down in front of the Apple II and I play this for hours on end. Now, are you playing the same game every time, or are you starting with a new party? Uh, sometimes it's a new party. Uh, prior to playing a couple of weeks ago, I hadn't played in a couple of months, uh, and I had misplaced the diskette that I was using, so I had to start a new party this time. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, if it, it beats Wizardry, in my opinion, hands down, and I used to play that game a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, what? I'd, what? What makes Silvern Castle better? I just like the uh, the detail that he's put into it. It's uh, it's it's got the same retro feel. It, it's it plays well. The play balance is good. The mechanics behind the 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 the, the game just it, it's well balanced. It's still difficult uh, when when you uh, conquer a level. There's a real good sense of achievement. It, it's just a really good game. It's well-conceived. Yeah, I remember writing the original review for Juice GS. This was way back when Max was the editor. I think it was my first article ever for Juice GS, and I had a great time. I, I think that was at version 1.0, maybe. And even back then, it was obvious that he had put, put a lot of work into this. Oh, yeah. So if you go to the Silver and Castle website and you click on version history, I don't think that lists the changes for version 9.5. But there's also on that page a link to his Google groups where you can discuss the game, and he does list the changes there. It looks like there have been six changes and three new features, including stowage. Uh, sounds like I have a list, but it's actually a, like a backpack or a sack in which you can put all your coins that you're right. hauling out of the, the dungeon. It's like a virtual bag of holding. <laughs> awesome. One last game item this month is the epic Apple II versus Commodore 64 chess match that was hosted by Carrington Vanson and Earl Evans of the Retro Computing Roundtable. And they basically, uh, they did not interface the computers like the Forbin project or anything like that. This was just, uh, one Apple II with a human player and a computer player and a Commodore 64 with a human player and the computer player. And anytime one computer made an automated move, they copied it over to the other one manually. And it was all done live via Google Chat or Google Hangouts, so you could see it in real time. It was a little hard to watch because it kept switching the screen based on not whose turn it was, but whoever was talking. I think uh, split-screen view might have been better, so you could see both screens at the same time. But it was still really neat to see these two computers go head-to-head. Uh, what did you think, Sean? <laughs> I thought it was great. Uh, it was painful to watch, but... Really, I didn't pay attention so much to the chess pieces moving around. I was really enjoying Earl and and Carrington's banter. They were they were very entertaining. Uh, they're they uh, they made the normally boring game of chess to me uh, much more interesting. <laughs> and the Apple II won, crushed it. Well, of course it did. <laughs> Do you remember exactly which games they were playing? Uh, what chess games they were using? Was it Chess Master Two Thousand? I think. No, I don't think it was Chessmaster 2000. Um, I believe it's documented on the on the YouTube page. I don't see it in the video description, which is surprising. The Commodore version has its name, the name of the program splashed across there. I, I hope it was their preeminent chess program. Which would be which one? I don't know. I, I was hoping that they, when they picked oh, okay. out the chess programs, I was hoping that they picked out what they thought were the best ones of the the, the best of the breed. Sure. I remember talking to Carrington about 
that he was mumbling on about it when we were trying to record a different podcast. He said that they spent some spent quite a bit of time trying to make sure that they found the best of the best of the best. So, oh, see, I was expecting him to use Micro Chess, uh, uh, or is it Chess Twenty One Hundred? Uh, I can't remember. Or Sargon Three, possibly. That sounds familiar. I remember them talking about this matchup in a previous episode of RCR, and I think they talked about using Sargon. I don't know if Sargon came out for the Commodore or not, but it, it would be kind of interesting if maybe the same chess program, if it was available on both platforms, and see how the algorithms worked out. Either way, the 6502 wins. Of course. A lot of time is uh, an effort is spent in the Apple II community to preserve software, and and some people tend to take a more liberal liberal approach and just post whatever they can get their hands on. And, um, but there are some of the, there are a few people who actually try to spend the time and effort to to contact the former publishers and producers of these products and and ask them if if uh, we can share their stuff now that it's 20 or 30 years old and nobody's making any money off of it anymore. It, the Lost Classics project is is a great example of this, but uh Dr. Ken Buckles over at apple2online.com announced that that he's been in touch with um Mark I don't even know how to pronounce this name, Pelzarski. He was the founder of Penguin Software and he ended up having to change it to Polarware when Penguin Books came after him and threatened him. Um, and all of the the old Penguin software uh, and Polarware back catalog is now available for download legally uh, on Apple II Online. And the great thing is Mark was able to find copies of the software that, that didn't have the copy protection already uh, applied. So I think that's pretty cool. And good for Dr. Ken for taking the, uh, for, for making the effort to, to make that happen. Way cool. I agree. Nice. I don't know if this is software that I grew up with, but anything that you can add to the archive of Apple II material that's out there before it gets lost, that's just fantastic. Uh, the, the one title that, that really sticks out in my mind that I used to play all the time was Spy's Demise. Mm. Oh, my God. That was theirs? I loved that mm-hmm. game. Yeah. I totally grew up with that. What I like is uh, these people in the community that, Sometimes it's really difficult to track down these authors or publishers from from back then, or or even to just kind of approach them out. You know, like, hey, we're Apple II people, we still we're still around. Uh, would you reclassify your software? But that takes a certain amount of dedication and investigation. And uh, for the people who are doing that, I really got to pat them on the back. Yeah, there there are a lot of especially with it, it tends to be I think a little bit easier with. Individuals, like in this case with Mark, where you can interface directly with someone who actually cares about this stuff, it gets harder when you're dealing with a company that either doesn't care or doesn't even know that they own the rights to it anymore. But because of, uh, you know, it, it would cost them money to do the, the legal research and, and the work that it would take to make it quote legal for us to do this, they can't be bothered, and so they just say no. Um, so whenever we get something like this. Um, where it's an entire back catalog from a company that's that's always great news. Yeah, nothing ventured, nothing gained, and I, I just really appreciate the people that do this. Yep, me too. He's also announcing that he has uh, copies of Mark's book called uh, Graphically Speaking, which is a, a book about programming uh, Apple II graphics. Uh, those are available in the A2, Apple II online uh, web store. Nice. Dr. Ken isn't the only one who's busy with this effort. Um, 
it seems that uh, Mark Pilgrim, he worked with Paul Lettuce to GPL the electric duet player routine. And this is, I don't quite understand this as much. So I guess just the player routine from the software is is the part of it that's GPL'd. Uh, the rest of it is still copyrighted. Is that right? Apparently. Hmm. I mean, it's just uh, amazing that you can, with uh, changing the frequency of the clicks of the Apple II speaker, that you can get any kind of music or sound effects out of it. And it's nice that Paul did this because if you want to put music in your own game or program or sound effects, whatever, uh, you know, Electric Duet is a very nice way to go about doing it. Well, I'm very glad that he did that. Do, do you remember the first time you ever heard Electric Duet? Not off the top of my head. Oh, I do. I, I, I was just amazed that the first time I heard it, I thought the Apple II can play music. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Takata and Fugue. Uh, it, it was just that. That was. I would just play all the music that came with it, kind of like a. I would just. I just was just amazed and floored by it, that the Apple II could do that. I remember being baffled as a kid why all my friends who had PCs needed to buy sound cards for their computers. I'm like, doesn't yours just do that automatically? Because ours did. That's true. The Apple, or the uh, IBM PC just goes, beep, beep. If you do a Google search for Electric Duet, you get two hits. Uh, first, you get the sponsored ads, which are for a clothes dryer called the Whirlpool Duet. And then you get a YouTube video from High Retro Gamer Lord 89. He has done YouTube videos of, as far as I know, every single Apple II game in existence. And That's apparently, a lot of games. He, it is. Uh, Steve Weirich did a blog post about this a couple years ago. And it, that's like how long it took this guy to do every game. And now he's moved on to other platforms. But I guess he classified the electric duet as something that he wanted to do a video of. And so there's five minutes of electric duet on his channel. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Not a link to the clothes dryer though sorry and mark program if you want to he does have a google uh, web page if you do a google search for mark pilgrim google he works at google oh wow oh yeah he's got his own wikipedia page yeah dang or if you or if you, or if you search uh, mark pilgrim apple II, he pops right up I was trying to verify his identity, but he never got back to me. But I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. Yeah, probably. When I, whenever I see his name, I always think of uh, like I want to start a fight with him as one of the evil ex-boyfriends, Mister <laughs> Pilgrim. <laughs> you know, uh, that's a. I love that movie. <laughs> it's only one of the best movies ever made. Well, you know what's funny is uh, that movie when I watched it for the first very first time, it reminded me of you, Kim. What? Who? I don't Michael know. Michael Sarah? Well, you know, there's a passing slight resemblance, but <laughs> it's because of your association with video games and, uh, the, it, it just, it reminded me of you. What's really scary is the, the girl that plays Ramona. The, yes. The character Ramona. Uh, she is almost identical to the girl I dated in high school in my Derby senior year. I mean, they could be Distant sis- cousins? sisters, cousins. I mean, down to the hair coloring. And she is almost a spit, spitting image of the girl I did. I liked her in Live for Your Die Hard and Sky High. Uh, she wasn't that great in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, though. No, she had kind of a wooden 
uh, acting style in that movie, I thought. Well, all the safer from vampires, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Now, I understand there's also been some new software from Brutal Deluxe lately. Is that right, Mike? They released something called OMF Analyzer, but I don't actually know what that is. It's not the OMG Analyzer? Uh, that's a different product, I think, yeah. That, that analyzes how good you do your OMGs. <laughs> and then and then criticizes you when you don't do well. Aw. So sort of like a mean Eliza. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I guess this is an analyzer for OMF files, which are part of uh, any executable code on the 2GS, like S16, CDAs, NDAs, FSTs. And what exactly is it analyzing it for? Uh, this is a command line tool for Windows, by the way. So this is another cross-platform development tool that Brutal Deluxe has come out with, quite a few of these. And the documentation appears to be extensive, but also a little bit above my head, because I'm not a developer nor a Windows user. Yeah, it's over my head, that's for sure. Uh, maybe we uh, maybe should get Antoine on sometime. Not a bad idea. It might be interesting if they can use that, if, if that can produce anything useful out of the file system translator analysis, because I know that, I guess nobody really knows how to create FSTs all that well, and so uh, if this helps that, then that would be a good thing. Seems to be an arcane black art to do an FST. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the documentation for developing FSTs never made it out of Apple for long, unfortunately. It's sitting there next to the uh, Apple IIsi. Dang! That's been in the news a lot lately. I don't know why people are talking about it now. But there have been some other models of Apple II that have recently been included in the Mac Tracker app. This is an app that is for the Mac, and it lists every single model of the Macintosh, which there have been many, especially in the years that Steve Jobs was not there. And now, all of a sudden, it's including devices that aren't Macs either. I guess for a while they've included Apple mice, keyboards, displays, and the like, and now then... And now also iPods and iPhones and iPads, and now they're even including Apple IIs. Is that right? You can enter information about your very own Apple Apple's one, two, three, and if you have uh, if you're a collector of early Apple monitors, you can track that too. It's a handy little database. Uh, it's not it's not extensive. If you really want to get down to like you know keeping track of, of motherboard serial numbers and things like that, it's this maybe maybe a little bit limited for that, but it's a neat tool for just kind of managing your inventory if you've got a big collection. Apple was recently compiling a new database of everybody's first Macintoshes, and that was on the occasion of the Macintosh's 30th birthday. On January 24th, 2014, the Mac turned 30 years old, two days after their infamous 1984 commercial turned 30 years old, and they set up a special web page on apple.com where people could pick from a slider of all the different Mac models that were out there. They could choose their own and then say where they were and what they were using it for. And then there was a map that Apple would display showing when Mac adoption occurred throughout the country and throughout the years of the Mac's lifetime, which was, I thought, kind of neat. Now, of course, you couldn't choose an Apple II because, as many people seem to still not know, the Apple II is not a Mac. But, <laughs> you know, even for those of us who are still a little bit bitter about Apple abandoning the Apple II platform. I'm still very happy nowadays to be a Mac user, and I still remember my first Mac, and I was happy to participate in this little celebration. What was your first Mac? 
My first Mac was the PowerBook 1400 CS, which I had my first year of college, and I traded up a, just a year later to the Wall Street, which Ryan Suenaga often called one of the best laptop Macs for emulating the Apple II. It still had ADB and SCSI ports. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that much about collecting that era of Mac hardware, but I, I see that I see all over the place that the Wall Street is a very popular model to to get. Yeah, I don't remember what happened to mine. I think I'm on my fifth or sixth Mac now. I did a brief history of my Mac computers on my Apple Tubits blog. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, I'm happy with it. The turning point for me in buying the Mac was I wanted one that I could not only run Bernie to the Rescue on, but from which I could print natively from AppleWorks Classic right to my HP DeskJet printer. Uh, because I, for the all four years of college, even though I was using laptop Macs, I did all my school papers, whenever possible, on an Apple II, emulated via Bernie. And so as soon as I was able to do that, I went to college. Hmm. I came to uh, the Mac kind of late in the game. I was one of those bitter Apple II users who swore I would never buy another Apple product when I switched to the PC. And uh, it kind of, uh, it was a secretist event where I started going to Kansas Fest. And um, I think it was my second year going to Kansas Fest that uh, I showed up with a iMac G3 333 megahertz uh, purple iMac. And, uh, I mean, I bought it literally on the way to Kansas Fest, and I unboxed <laughs> it right there at Avila. So what cool. was it that brought you back to Apple? Uh, I think it was uh, the guys at, at uh, Kansas Fest uh, taking some time to show me the Apple and the the Macintosh, and uh, I decided it was time for a change to check it out, and I ended up liking it. And I've been buying Macs pretty much ever since. Once you go Mac, you don't go back. Yeah. That's proven true for me. What about you, Mike? Like Sean, I was bitter and angry at Apple and swore that I would never, ever, ever get back together with Apple. And um, my first Mac was one of those, was it 2004, I think? iBooks, one of the white pearly things that now sort of looks all scratched up and dingy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, that's, that's kind of, I didn't just jump back into buying Apple or buying Apple hardware, the newer stuff. It's, I've kind of edged in sideways. I picked up, you know, an iPad here, an iPhone there. My PC on the, on the desktop is currently a Windows machine that's going away next month to be replaced by, by an iMac. And so I'm slowly, kind of moving away from Windows, and, and I should be all Mac before you know it. Yay! Well, I can't get away from Windows. I, uh, you know, The nice thing I like about the Mac is I have, at home I can use OS ten, but at work I can use my Linux, Windows. I do it all in VMs. And uh, it's just simply the most flexible machine I've ever owned. Yeah, OS X or OS X, whatever you want to call it, had finally, for me, reached a point where not only did I want to use it, but I wanted to use it more than the Windows machines that I have. Because for a long time, Mac OS was really kind of terrible. I don't remember it being terrible. Uh, you don't remember Mac OS 8? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about OS X. Oh, I don't Some of the earlier releases were kind of... Mm. I liked 8 more than 9. Really? Yeah, don't ask me why. This was like 10, 15 years ago. Oh, well, it's all behind us now. Unless you're looking at some pictures of early Apple employees, in which case the Mac is still well in their future. I guess this is something that just recently got unearthed 
Jim Edwards uh, over at Business Insider posted a series of very early Apple, very early, early photos taken on Apple computer. I mean, we're talking 1975, 76 era. Um, and it's neat because like the second photo on the page is a picture of Chris Ann and Mark Johnson and someone named Robert Martinego uh, standing in front of a pile of boxed up Apple twos. Uh, it looks like that's maybe someone's house or a garage or something. Yeah, probably. So we're talking way, 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 way back. And I love the, the, the seventies hairstyles and the clothes. And <laughs> that's, that's just fun. Yeah. It looks like it was, uh, as you said, Bob Martinego and Mark Johnson, who, delivered these photos to Business Insider on the occasion of the upcoming 30th anniversary of the Mac. I don't, actually, I, maybe that wasn't why they did it, but... Nice coincidence, then. Yeah, I guess they just felt, hey, it's time to publish these old random photos. <laughs> <laughs> I never get tired of uh, looking at these old Apple pictures. I mean, it's they're fascinating. It's, it's a, a look into the past and... Uh, I, I kind of wish I could have been there. Yeah, me too. Just so you could steal some vintage hardware? And then come back to the future and sell it? Yeah, well, maybe, but uh, it, it would be kind of cool just to... It's I guess the sociologist in me uh, are... Uh, I, I, it'd be nice to kind of go back in time and... Do, do these people at this point in their lives, do they realize the impact that they are going to have on not only the industry, but all the people the education system, uh, do they realize at this point in their lives that what's going to happen? And when they do eventually realize it, are they even able to grok it? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's so incomprehensible. Like when uh, Eric and Sarah Shepard brought Sophia to Kansas Fest this past summer and introduced her to Waz, if it weren't for Waz, that child would not exist because those two adults met in an Apple II chat room. And, I mean, that's just one example. I'm sure there are countless others in which Waz's existence, the, the fact that he walks this planet, has dramatically altered the paths of other people's lives. And just to look back and say, oh, my God, look at everything I've done. To be that person, I mean, wow. Well, I, I can say that without the Apple II, uh, I probably would not be in the industry I'm in now. I probably would not have picked up computers and enjoyed them uh, and, you know, became an IT guy. Me too. And are you both grateful for that change or do you blame the Apple II? Well, it beats pumping gas. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I like the the hand-drawn office plans. It looks like there's a, mm -hmm. a large poster posted up on a wall of the, uh, the facility at Stevens Creek. The, and, and you can see how crowded in there everybody was and... Um, a very sort of grassroots bohemian feel to to all of this tennis courts question mark I like that yeah one one of these drawings the one I think that you're referring to with the tennis courts and the like this looks identical with the blueprint that Chris Espinosa published back in November of 2011 I think it's the same yeah yeah oh yeah it is I can even see the little time or the little label of the date in the lower left corner is the same uh, but the rest appear to be new so I don't know this one that Business Insider published has Robert Martinego's credit on it, so I assume that this is just his copy of the same thing that Chris had. Or Chris maybe actually has the actual thing, thing that's on the wall, and, right. and Bob just has the photo of it. Oh, these are all rip-offs. It's a scam. 
Honestly. That. Nothing original. Just people trying to cash in on Apple Mania. What I, what I think is kind of weird between, if you look at the pictures of, uh, the, the group picture where they're standing in front of the Apple IIs, mm-hmm. you got that guy that's on the far right hand corner with his legs crossed and his arms crossed and he's looking at the camera. And then you scroll down. And he's almost in the exact same pose and facial expression with far fewer people. It's like they photocop or photoshop him <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's like that, he, it's his signature pose. Well, that had to have been taken the same day because he and the few people who are in the same photo are wearing the same clothes. So I think everybody else moved and he just stayed. <laughs> it's like he's frozen in time. He might still be there. <laughs> A living artifact. Amazing. Did either of you happen to make it out to Mac 30th, 30th celebration on January 25th? There was an event? Yes, Mac30th.com. There's a huge party thrown for the Macintosh. This is the first I've heard of it. No, I didn't go. Who held the party? Was it Apple? Uh, the event was held at the Flint Center uh, on January 25th, 2014, from 7 to 11 p.m. And I... And I believe the guy, so you remember a couple, maybe it was last year when they, they found that Twiggy Mac and, and got it working and polished up and all that. I think the guy who put that together sponsored this event. And it looks like he had quite the all-star cast. Mike Markula, Rod Holt, Randy Wigginton, Chris Espinoza, Bill Fernandez, Dan Kotke, Jerry Manick, Bill Atkinson, Andy Hertzfeld. Yeah, basically wow. most of the significant still surviving members of the Mac team. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, my private jet was in the shop that day. <laughs> yeah, geez, I, I don't know what my excuse was. What was I doing on January 25th? My invite uh, must have got lost in the mail, my VIP invite. I'm sure that's what happened. Yep, me too. And they had to cancel an entire panel because you weren't there. I know. They were oh, so well. disappointed. Well, you'll be there when I turn 60. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can buy a commemorative poster of <laughs> Aw. <laughs> you know, uh, it's nice that the Apple took the time to celebrate the Mac's 30th birthday and all that. Uh, I'm just not into vintage Macs like I am into the Apple II. Yeah, I don't have the same affection for the Macs that I do for the Apple IIs. I just don't get excited by it. I, I, I know there's a lot of Apple, you know, Macintosh fanboys that, you know, that love their vintage Macs, and I just can't relate. Yeah, we'll leave that to the retro MacCast guys. Yeah, every now and then I'll get an email from a well-meaning friend saying, Hey, Ken, I just found a whole bunch of old Macs. Do you want them? And I'm like, no. Why would I? They just don't understand the distinction between what I do and what those are. Yeah, to them, they're just old apples, and they lump them all together. Right. This poster that they're selling is actually kind of cool, though, because they they invited people to share their stories and, and photos of themselves with their old Macs. And then use those photos to create this mosaic poster. Oh, yeah. Uh, they did sign, not they, but something similar was done a couple of years ago for Star Trek where I sent in a picture of me and my dad and they included it in this giant mosaic of the Starship Enterprise. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's not an Apple thing, but I'm familiar with the concept and it's a great way to almost guarantee your sales because you want a copy of the poster that you're in. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, Apple's never going to do this for the Apple II, so maybe somebody in the community should organize something. Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody, sure. (laughs) And uh, as Sean and I were talking offline earlier, I just have limitless energy for Apple II projects, so bring it on. You heard it here first, folks. 
Yeah. If you've got time to produce a calendar, you can do this. <laughs> there may be a point to what you say, sir. Darn you. Mac 30th wasn't the only recent assemblage of computer industry founders. We also had the Homebrew Computer Club reunion hosted by the Computer History Museum, and this was funded on Kickstarter. Uh, there was a gathering that featured Ted Nelson, Steve Wozniak, Lee Felsenstein, and many more on the evening of November 11th, 2013. And the entire thing, thanks to Kickstarter, was video recorded and posted online. So there is an hour and a half video of the celebrities that I just mentioned talking about the Computer History Museum, talking about the Homebrew Computer Club, and everything that's come of the two. It's a, a fascinating watch, just to see all these people who, as we just talked about, have had such an impact on our lives, reflecting on their humble beginnings in this little club. And if you're interested in the history of the Homebrew Computer Club, definitely pick up the, the Mark Levy book, Hackers. There's a big section uh, dedicated to that club and how it got started and who attended and the meetings, uh, meeting goings-on and things like that. Not to be confused with the Angelina Jolie movie, Hackers. <laughs> no, you, you don't really want to watch that. Unless you want to you, see an Apple IIgs being used to hack. I forget what he was hacking with that. but. Uh, and also Satan's Hollow, the arcade game, being played on a really big TV. Yep. And that's pretty much the only parts of the movie that are worth anything. Well, I don't know. Uh, Angela Jolie, she's kind of cute in that movie. Yeah, How old was she in that movie? That movie was in 1995, and she was born in 75, so she was 20 at the time when it hot. came out. <laughs> Her co-star, uh, that guy, I can't remember whose name, I can't remember. Johnny Lee Miller. They were married for a, par- a period of time and then split up. Oh, you mean Crash and Burn? Yes. <laughs> Johnny Lee Miller, yeah, as you just said. In real life, they married. I did not know that. He was much better in train spotting. He looks like Keanu Reeves. What? No way. Uh, in the IMDb photo. No, he doesn't. He... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even looking at it, and I know that he doesn't look like Keanu Reeves. Wow. He looks like a cross between Keanu Reeves and somebody else. Maybe no. Hugh Jackman. No, he does not. No. Fine. Moving on. Mike, you mentioned that there's an Apple IIgs in Hackers. There's a website dedicated to computers appearing in films, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Yes, there is. Uh, it's called Starring the Computer. It's, I think, just a one, one-man one effort. He's he's going through and documenting every appearance of a vintage or retro computer in, in media that he can. And it's quite an extensive collection of, of photos and descriptions. Well, I recently came across sort of a compliment to that website. It's called Source Code in TV and Films. It is a Tumblr. And they basically uh, pause or freeze frame any film that shows source code scrolling by. And they figure out what language it is, if it's appropriate to the context of that scene, and if it is actually a program. Now, one of the most famous examples, of course, is when we see from the Terminator's perspective in the first Terminator film, we all know where that source code came from. Nibble. That's right. As oh, as David Satella told us when he keynoted at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, he was a little bit surprised that we already knew all that story and kind of ruined the punchline for him. But yeah, they took code right out of Nibble magazine and put it on the Terminator's heads-up display. So he apparently is running a 6502 chip. In source code and films, they identified some more examples in the TV series Revolution, which just started a year or two ago, they actually have some source code for Prince of Persia 
who knows that they might not ever have been able to film that scene if it weren't for Tony Diaz. So are you saying that I have to worry about my Apple II rising up and killing all humanity? Oh, well, we've been worried about that ever since the 80s. Worry? Heck, I dream about that. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new robotic overlords. Indeed. I think the only two examples of Apple II source code that this Tumblr has identified thus far are the Prince of Persia and the Nibble Terminator. <laughs> the Nibble Terminator. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds like somebody who just comes into my kitchen and eats all my snacks. <laughs> so yeah, neat website. Another museum that has been supporting the Apple II with exhibits lately is the Museum of the Moving Image, which is in Astoria, New York. And the reason that they are celebrating the Apple II is because it is the 25th anniversary of one of the most storied franchises in computer and video game history. And it got started on the Apple II, as Wayne Arthington pointed out at a Kansas Fest session that he hosted a couple years ago. That game is John Madden Football, which came out in 1988. And Madden NFL 25, the 25th annual edition of the game, came out in 2013 on the Xbox One. And the Museum of the Moving Image is looking at the game's evolution and the various incarnations it has had. From the Apple II, to the Sega Genesis, to the Dreamcast, to the Xbox One, and additional platforms. I am not even a little a football fan. But I think it's cool that they're using this as an excuse to pimp out the Apple II. Uh, I've never played Madden on any platform, even the Apple II, so I'll have to punt. Ha! <laughs> nice. Well done, sir. Uh, this game was also in the news just recently. Back in December or so, the lawsuit was finally settled between the creator or the original programmer of the Apple II version of Madden NFL and its publisher, Electronic Arts. He argued that he was owed royalties for subsequent releases of the game, the annual editions, because it was based on his code and the court agreed and awarded him $11.4 million in damages, or thereabouts. Touchdown. Oh, well, maybe not. I think there might be a penalty here, because of just a few weeks later, in January, an, a higher court reversed that ruling. That's roughing the passer. <laughs> and you say you've never played football, sir. Well, not on the Apple II or Xbox or any other platform. Gotcha. I, I just, now I've got visions of Walter Day in my head in that stupid striped shirt that he wears doing the penalty stuff in King of Kong. <laughs> I'll be headed up to Fun Spot in just two weeks with Andy Malloy. Excellent. Yay, it's our annual pilgrimage. Wish I could go. Me too. You're welcome, you're welcome to join us, guys. Fly on up. <laughs> That'd be a, quite a road trip. My wife might have a problem with me spending that much money to get to an arcade across the country. Hey, you did it once. It's true, I did, yeah. I just <laughs> just use the excuse of taking you home as, as an excuse. Just paying quarters. Oh, is that what it was? I thought I kidnapped you. Oh, that too. I hear that ground control in Portland, Oregon is comparable to Fun Spot. Anybody ever been there? Nope. Hmm. We have a lot of listeners in that neck of the woods, and more, in fact. Uh, one K-Fester just moved to that area. Uh, I really should get somebody from over there on the... On this show, or we should. I mean, we had Kevin Savitz already, but I don't know that we talked much about ground control. Well, I regret not going to the arcade uh, that you guys visited during Kansas Fest. Oh, my God. That movie theater was the amazing. Yeah. Yes. Well, was it, it was it Michael Sternberg who recommended that? I believe it was. Well, if uh, 
I don't know if that place is still there. Um, I think the movie theater is. But if we plan that as a another road trip for this year, uh, I'm going to be there. Well, here's the thing about that. So the the games that were there in July are not there anymore. One of the listeners to uh, to no quarter sent us photos of the the barren and empty space where the games used to be. But the guy that the, so they they rent these games from a local arcade collector right. who just all he does is rent his games out for stuff like that. So, right. and I think Sternberg or somebody else has a connection to him that, and said that, you know, just let him know ahead of time and he can probably get them out somewhere for us um, by July. That'd be sweet. Yep. So it may not if be, at, it may not be at Alamo draft house, but we can probably make it happen. If only we knew somebody on the Kansas Fest committee who could make that happen. Man, that, w- that would be just awesome. Wouldn't it? Do you know who we can call, Sean? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll look into that. Thank you, sir. We'll we'll get it on like Donkey Kong. Sweet. Speaking of Kansas Fest, are there any announcements coming up soon? Yes, we've engaged a keynote speaker. Uh, an, an announcement is imminent, as are the uh, the the logos and everything else. You can expect uh, Peter Newbauer to uh, make, be making his press releases pretty soon. Excellent. I am waiting with bated breath. I think you'll find this this year's speaker to be very interesting. It's not me, is it? Uh, no. Oh, you're right. Very interesting. It wouldn't be. Never mind. Did Wonderful. Somebody, did somebody track down Nathan Mates or something? Ha <laughs> ha. No. I remember one year when we made the press release of who the keynote speaker was. It was news to the keynote speaker. We had asked him if he would be willing, and he said, if you can't find anybody else, sure. And we never got back to him to let him know that we hadn't found anybody else. So he just saw the press release one day. He's like, oh, I guess it's me. <laughs> Who's that? Sheppy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Yeah, funny. I would like to think that we've, uh, as a community, have refined our workflow since then. <laughs> well, we've had some really high-quality, high-caliber uh, keynote speakers recently. Uh, you know, famous, famous people. I mean, people you want to get their autographs. Right. You know. And some of them said that they want to come back this year. It'll be interesting to see if we see Randy and Waz again. That would be awesome. Yeah, because there are some signatures I'm still missing. Or, in this case, Wasm. Ugh. Oh. My one regret from Kansas Fest last year was that I forgot to bring my Us Festival poster to have Waz sign. So I hope he shows up this year to, to autograph that. Because that's really all I want him for is autographs. That's right. Well, before we get there, we have a couple of other conventions coming up, and both of them along the East Coast, so yeah, yeah to you guys. If only you were here, you could go to Fun Spot, too. <laughs> uh, first coming up, April 4th to the 6th, in Wall Township, New Jersey, that bustling hive of activity, is the Vintage Computer Festival East 9.1. VCF East 9.1 is being held April 4th to the 6th, and it has an actual Apple One being exhibited, not just a replica, and there are some other workshops that may or may not be of interest to Apple II users. Anybody ever heard of Bob Applegate? Yeah. And he's going to have some prototypes there. Any idea? Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what he may have been responsible for, Sean? Uh, no, I just, I'm familiar with the name. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I haven't done my research on that yet either. But yeah, VCF has really expanded in the last few years to be not just exhibits, but also sessions and workshops and the like. I understand Vince Briel is going to be there. And I believe you were telling us, Sean, that Mike Legal will be there too? Yeah, he's going to have a build-your-own uh 
uh, lab for the Swift card reproduction. Ooh, now I actually want to go. Can you remind us what the Swift card is? It's a it's a brainchild of Jeff Raskin. It's a small card. It usually goes in slot three of an Apple IIe, and it has a built-in word processor, um, calculator, and some uh, uh, limited telecommunications capability, and it can save its files directly to a diskette, bypassing any kind of operating system. It's all kind of built in. A later incarnation of it was um, realized in the Canon Cat, which uh, was real popular with some collectors. Uh, it, it, it's kind of what the Macintosh was going to originally be envisioned to be before uh, before Steve Jobs came along and totally changed it into the direction of you know, what they found at Xerox Park. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff Raskin originally envisioned it kind of as a uh, an information appliance, very quick and easy to use, and then it turned into a windowing operating system. Hmm. And you'll be able to build your own at VCF East. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, the, the Swift card is one of those elusive, hard-to-find cards that whenever they show up on eBay, people end up paying through the nose for I don't know if it's just if they're collectible or if they're people want them to use them, but they're they're just not very common. And so the, Mike's doing a really valuable service for the community. Well, that's what he does. He's a good guy. In fact, I uh, unexpectedly bumped into him about a week and a half ago. There is a professor in Boston named Mary Hopper, who I may have mentioned on the show before, running an organization called the Digital Den. She is trying to establish a Boston-based museum to replace the Computer History Museum, which we lost to Silicon Valley 14 years ago. So she is trying to create what she calls the New England-wide Computer History Museum, I think, or the New Computer Museum for short, N-E-W, as an acronym. And she held a little session a couple weeks ago to talk about how other museums are collecting and archiving their materials and I, you know, I sit down in the front row and she starts her session and we, we went around and introduced ourselves beforehand. And in the middle of the session, I hear a question from the back of the room and I turn around and I'm like, hi, Mike, when did you sneak in here? <laughs> there he was. I hadn't seen him in two or three years. Uh, back then he had stopped by my office at Computer World to drop off some brain boards for me to bring to Kansas Fest to sell. And that was the last I'd seen him in like three years. So I just suddenly turn around. There he is. It was kind of neat. I'm so, just, he, so he is alive and well. I'm just impressed by his phenomenal attention to detail on his reproductions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so detail-oriented. It's it's like having the real thing almost. Yeah, very <laughs> meticulous. Yes. And on the other end of the spectrum, I really like uh, Vince Briel's flexibility to adapt to modern technologies and create an Apple One that has a USB port, for example. Yeah, and he just... He just uh, put out the uh, 10th anniversary boards. Yeah, and I understand they're selling quite well. He actually has temporarily taken some of his other items out of stock just so he can focus on the replica 110. It's sold out. Oh. The well, next bet, the next batch of boards will be green boards, and they won't be the, the fancy anniversary. I mean, they'll be 10s, but they'll, they won't be in the limited edition red board. Gotcha. And that must be what he's focusing on ramping up right now. Yeah. I awesome. think he's shipping right now. Right now, like as we speak? Yes, possibly. Real time. <laughs> and whenever the person listens to this podcast, also at that time he's shipping. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if like they were listening to this podcast and it actually arrived? 
<laughs> I want, while we're recording the next episode, to be when my copy of Retro Fever arrives. Another event coming up on the East Coast that's on the, in the Southeast is VCF Southeast 2.0, the second annual to be held in Roswell, Georgia, assuming that they can dig themselves out from that overwhelming three inches of snow they had earlier this week. Uh, so this will be the event that was founded last year by David Grealish with a little bit of help from Kickstarter. I don't know if he's still involved in it, but it has certainly taken on a life of its own and will be back. I'm sure that if they have the Apple One pop-up museum or whatever it was last year that they had, that there will be lots of more press coverage, assuming the press hasn't gotten enough of their Apple Ones. Uh, I do have a brother in Atlanta, but I also have a standing commitment the first weekend of May every year up here in Massachusetts, so I will not be going. But I think everybody who is in the area and hasn't been yet should check it out, especially since this is still an event that's somewhat in its infancy. It can really use any support it can get. Yeah, I saw the photo galleries posted from last year. It looked like a really well-put-together event. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't I didn't hear anything bad to say about it. I, li- I like the photos, especially of the, the walkthrough museum that they, the pop-up museum that they had set up. Yeah, I think that museum popped up a couple other places in the months after that event. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's... Sometimes traveling exhibit or something. Yeah, a float. You mean a pop-up museum? There you go. That's the term for it. I've never been to a VCF. I'd like to go someday. Everybody should check out a VCF at some point in their lives. Not just computer enthusiasts. I mean everyone. All six billion of them. And uh, I guess to wrap things up for the news section, a bunch of a bunch of software familiar to Apple II users has been updated in the recent um, in, in the past month. We have a new version of CiderPress, Andy uh, McFadden's Windows um, Windows utility for for managing your 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 disk images. Apple Win has been updated. Uh, Ivan, I keep calling thinking his his name is Ivan X, but it's. Um, Ivan Drucker has updated A2 Server and A2 Cloud. Ewan Wanup has released a new version of Snap. And uh, Crew has released a 65 assembler program. I just love that we have programmers that are still releasing software. Me too. Me three. Now, I haven't gotten to play with any of these programs in a while, but I love how not only are they still updating these programs, but just like Jeff Fink, some of these programs are for lack of a better term, really old. Like Cider Press, that's been around for many years. He, he blew the dust off the source code to, to update that. It's been years. Yeah, I'm, uh, Andy McFadden, he has been around for... the. He's been, he's been a member of the Apple II community for a long time. He worked on the X-Band modem for the Super Nintendo, which allowed people to play games like Mario Kart and Street Fighter over the phone. And uh, because the Super Nintendo and the Apple II GS essentially have the same CPU. So he was able to translate his experience on the Apple II into a successful career as a video game programmer. Cool. Yeah. And I like that he's still supporting the community in these tangential ways. CiderPress is the premier you know, file translator and accessor, for lack of a better word again, on the Windows platform. You know, There's really nothing quite as comprehensive. And, of course, there's always Ivan Drucker continuing with his A2 server and A2 cloud and Ewan Wanup with his telecom abilities. And it's just great that these guys are so tireless. I love it. However, we of the Open Apple Podcast are not tireless. And, in fact, (laughs) as these shows record for hours and hours, we get quite tired. So I think perhaps now is a good time to end tonight's show. Good call, Ken.
Yes, at least while we're all still awake. So there will always be another episode in another month, but for now, I think we've had a wonderful evening. Wouldn't you all agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I had a good time hanging out with you guys. Yeah, I'm sorry it took us so long to get you on the show, Sean. You used to be a regular on A2 Unplugged, and I think when we started this show, let uh, we wanted to give some other members of the community their voices, and unfortunately it's been so long since A2 Unplugged that I, I think we're like, oh, we actually did just the opposite, and now we're ignoring the wrong people. So it's great to finally have you on the show. You were on with our very first roundtable back in 2011, and it's great to be able to have you on as a dedicated guest as well. So thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. And, uh, of course, we'll see you online at a2central.com, and we'll see you at Kansas Fest. Okay. We'll see you guys there. Bye, Sean. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Now we need to create audio cues by which to synchronize the tracks later on, and the way we do that is by counting off numbers. I'll start with one, Mike says two, Sean says three, then we go around again, four, five, six. I'll start. One. Six. Two. Three. Five. I hate you guys so much.